Welcome to everyone joining the webinar. We will get started in just a minute. We're letting folks get into the room. Since we are right at the top of the hour, I'll go ahead and start the housekeeping. Um, we've got a full program today, so welcome to um, today's SNEB webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the executive director of the Society, and so glad you're joining us. A special welcome. We have quite a few non-members um, who are attending today. And so just a reminder that uh, participating in all SNEB webinars, whether live or recording, is a benefit of membership in SNEB, um, free to members. So if you are interested in joining SNEB based on uh, the excellent contact your content you're going to hear today, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out and we're happy to share some uh, more information about that. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping. I'm going to go ahead and put the slides for today's presentation into the chat uh, so you can download those and follow along. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation. Please type those out for um, our moderators to uh, share with our speaker today. Uh, when the webinar ends, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as any ideas uh, for future webinars. Um, we are recording today, uh, so watch for a follow-up email by Wednesday of this week with a link to the recording, the handout, and the CEU certificate that you're earning for your live attendance. And I want to introduce um, our two organizers for um, the webinar today. It's a joint effort between our Public Health Nutrition Division, um, which is chaired by Matthew Landry, and Higher Education Division, which is chaired by Jen Zercher. Um, a division membership is also included free uh, in your SNEB membership, so this is a good example of some of the programming uh, that you will would receive as a member of a division. Uh, so I'll turn things over to Matthew to start our session. Excellent. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so starting with today's um, nutrition educator competencies listed here on the screen, um, three general competencies for those that are interested. And just a little bit of announcements on our division end um, from the public health nutrition side. Um, we recently published an editorial in the society's journal um, focusing on supporting food and nutrition security among migrant, immigrant and refugee populations, which I encourage you to. Um, 
to review. Um, we also have a conference session coming up at the SMEB conference where several of our members are speaking on the topic of transforming the charitable food system for the future. Um, we hope that you join for that session and the conference overall in Washington, DC. And don't forget for those, um, the abstract deadline is coming up on March 1st and the public health nutrition does give an abstract award for the top scoring abstracts. And lastly, a reminder, SMEB elections just started, so make sure to get those votes in for the future leadership of the organization. All right, and from the higher ed division, um, we annually, we have two um, all-member meetings. Our spring meeting is coming up on April 13th, and um, the topic will be research in progress, and that will be an opportunity for members to present a little bit about some of the research either they have completed or that they are in the process of working on. So any um, members that are interested in presenting, please contact Pauline Williams. Um, the higher ed division also sponsors the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning Award um, that is recognizing um, educators who are doing innovative things um, in their classroom and um, making a difference um, for their students. So uh, nominations are coming up due by March 1st, and then all materials for that award are due by March 31st. And finally, to you know, follow up on what Matthew said um, with the SNEB conference this summer in Washington, DC, uh, we look forward to seeing everyone there. Higher Ed and um, the student division have a presentation that they are doing called Building Capacity for Empowered Food Citizens Through Involvement in SNAB. Um, also, I will reiterate abstract, uh, the abstract deadline is coming up on March 1st, and we look forward to seeing people at our both our business meeting and social um, during the conference. Um, and then finally, within higher ed, we are still um, always looking for opportunities for those that are interested in working with us and serving on our leadership team, we do have a few open positions at this time, our ACPP representative, um, as well as our diversity, equity, and inclusion representative. And then we also have um, subcommittees within our division. And um, we have a few open chair positions. Our, our um, subcommittee, our DEI subcommittee, um, chair as well as the, our SOTL chair within the division. So please reach out if anyone is interested in either chairing those or just participating in any of those um, subcommittees. So with that, um, we will move forward. I'll send it back to Matthew. Thanks, Jen. Um, and I'm really excited to present today's presenter. Um, we have Dr. Wesley McWhorter, who is the Director of Lifestyle Medicine Saveda Healthcare and is an advisory council member for the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative, a nonprofit global network. As a professional chef and dietitian, Dr. McWhorter is also a behavioral scientist, strength and conditioning specialist, cookbook author, and food as medicine expert. His research and work focuses on nutrition equity and closing the divide between culinary literacy and nutrition education and policy through hands-on culinary medicine education. Dr. McWhorter graduated from the Florida Culinary Institute and earned her bachelor's degree from Kansas State University a master's degree from the University of Texas Medical Branch, and a doctorate from the University of Texas Health Science Center School of Public Health. Without further ado, I'll turn things over to Wesley. And thank you for joining us, Wesley. Yeah, thank you, Matthew and Jen. I really appreciate uh, the invitation today to, to speak to 
the community. And, you know, I, 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 um, I always have to pinch myself when I'm doing presentations like this, just because, you know, a few short years ago, it was, you know, going through my education and finalizing things. So it, it really is a, an honor to be here and be presenting. So um, I would say what I'm talking about today is a, um, a topic that we need to be talking about a lot more. And I'll say it, it's been happening a lot more frequently, um, uh, areas of research that we're doing that we're all part of. Um, and I would, you know, just generally speaking, this is, uh, it's good for us to be um, challenging what we've seen in our literature um, and then improving on that um, and not being quiet. So I'm going to say some things I think today that some of you might find a hard to accept, but many others are going to be very excited to finally hear. Um, so, you know, if you feel frustrated or, you know, uh, angry at something I say, um, you know, take a minute to kind of collect and understand where I'm coming from and where uh, the words I'm saying, what I'm trying to represent. And I would say the same for uh, if you have any questions after I present, we're not able to get to your uh, Q&A, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to discuss further. So I'm going to go ahead and pull up my slides. And um, I also try to have the chat box up. I know we'll, we'll make time for a question and answer after, but if for some reason you want to um, uh, put something in the chat, please feel free to do that. I'll, I'll try to um, cover that while I'm talking as well. Um, so today, again, um, I'm not going to be deep diving into nutrition insecurity in and of itself. I'm going to be talking more on the cultural humility part and really diving into um, those of you that are doing community-based uh, interventions, community-based work. Um, you know, how do, how do we work in communities that we're not a part of. And that's a big problem that we see with ivory tower institutions where we want to fix people. And <laughs> I'm from Southern Alabama and I, I like to use the term, you know, people don't need fixing. They really don't. Um, we need to learn and listen and listen full stop. That's really important for us to, to just, you know, yes, we're experts, but it's very important for us to listen to the communities that we're working with. So um, moving on. I don't have any financial disclosures. Um, I do serve on some various boards and things, but uh, no, not taking any money or anything along that line. Uh, my employment is through Savita Healthcare, uh, where I'm the director of lifestyle medicine, and I also do some consulting. So I already kind of talked about this, but again, just covering the topics of you know where food comes from, like what, why do we eat the certain things we eat? Why is it so important? Uh, that people like certain foods. And I know that might not necessarily connect with nutrition and security, but I'll get into why this is very important. Um, as Matthew mentioned, you know, in my education, I was a chef first. Um, I worked as a chef for nearly 15 years. So when we talk about food, um, I'm coming from that perspective as well. And I, I often find in conversations with people, that's really that like, you know, people often say food is love, you know, food is who we are. Like, Food is life and life is food. And, and I think, you know, maybe if y'all tell me in the chat box here what you think about that, you know, life is food, food is life. But a lot of us really, you know, we, we get together as humans to eat. And when something sad happens, we eat. When something happy happens, we eat. And then there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of things that kind of connect with why we eat what we eat or why we don't eat what we eat. Um, Another thing too, is, you know, if you're thinking of your favorite foods and the things that you love, you know, why, what is that human connection um, that honestly separates us from the, the Tesla plug-in car, your cell phone that you have, that you're probably looking at right now? Like what, it, what is that piece that separates us where, you know, food's not just energy. It's not just, you know, the calories and the nutrients, but there's some form of that human connection. And I find often, I think a lot of us have seen this is that 
in nutrition research, we remove that human aspect of food. And that is such a huge problem when we're talking about changing those behaviors and improving people's uh, eating habits. So very, very uh, important. Yeah. So happy, happy heart. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Recipes are, are family food stories. You know, I think one of the best ways to get to know people is talking about food and at least sharing a meal together too. Um, so Excuse me. So for anybody that doesn't know what, you know, nutrition uh, security is or food insecurity, um, the, the term, again, is translated from just saying food insecurity, which is like, OK, it's just calories to really saying, no, it's about it's about the quality of the food. You know, like what we're providing for folks or what people are not able to access actually causes like big problems. If we're only providing low quality foods, that's not solving the problem. It's making it worse. So the, the concept that it's basically a, you know, a human right, essentially, for, for folks to have you know, healthy, accessible uh, foods. That's, that's really where we're coming from with nutrition security. So I'm not going to be talking a lot about that. I'm going to be talking on, more on the, the, um, uh, the humility side, the cultural humility. So pop quiz question here. If you've heard me speak before, I've probably asked this question, but I think it's very important um, to ask this. So if I gave you all a, a quiz, you know, I think there's 100 and something people on this right now. Um, at the end of the, this you know, presentation and 90% of you failed, you know, 90 of you failed it. What do y'all think? Is it me as an instructor? I did a really poor job or is it your fault? What do you think? Yeah, the teacher, right? I mean, that, that to me, like, of course. But when you look at the data, when like, you know, and again, these numbers go up and down a little bit. Maybe it's 85% of folks are not consuming enough vegetables. Maybe it's 80%, you know, maybe it's 88%. They range up and down a little bit here and there. But by and large, most people in the U.S. are not consuming enough vegetables. We're not getting enough whole grains. We're eating way too much sodium. I say this to say we're not hitting the mark. We're not where we need to be um, on, on the actual consumption patterns. And yeah, there could be some issues with the, the validity of the test and the, the, the assessing this, yeah. But again, when we're looking at, at this here, what we do when we see these statistics, we say, well, just go eat more vegetables, just do it, you know, like, and it's usually, you know, the, the physician here is very angry, but that's often the, the concept. If you just tried harder, you just pushed yourself, you would be able to achieve success, right? You would be able to do this, but we know that's just not accurate and that's not true. But again, that is the concept of how we're teaching um, nutrition right now. So I'm going to kind of flip again and ask y'all more questions. And I apologize, I'm doing this to you. I know I'm I'm not in uh, academia anymore, but I, as, a, as an instructor, a teacher, a professor, I, I really like asking questions. And whenever I have this statistic, I'm always like, why? You know, in any other field, if you're missing the mark by 80%, 90%, you don't have a job. And, you know, in nutrition, we're missing the mark. And I'm not laying blame solely on the dietitian or on physician or researchers. It's the system as a whole. We're missing the mark. What can we do different? So I'll ask you all this question. What is healthy food? What do you think healthy food is? And I like to ask this question to different populations, different, different you know, uh, folks with different backgrounds, just to see what people think of. You know, like what comes to mind when you, when you read that term, what is healthy food? What comes to mind? Healthy patterns, healthy food, foods are nourishing, food that nourishes the body whole food, plant foods. Yeah. I mean, and there's no right or wrong answer right now. This is just simply more to gauge like in your mind, what is healthy? Foods to help you be your best. All right. So let's, 
let's just, if you change it to nutritious food, does that make any difference? Does that change what you're thinking or not thinking about what just came up? See a lot of plant-based, so foods that contribute to health. What about if we flip it and we say unhealthy? What do y'all think then? What comes to mind? So all foods should be, you know, they're highly processed foods. A lot of people are saying highly processed foods. Yeah, so there's a lot of negative things in different cultures. You know, there's a lot of potential to negatively impact health. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different answers here back and forth. And then this is the question, you know, I asked you kind of what you're thinking, but like what, what picture came to mind? Like what was the, what did you see? You know, when you think of something you see in pictures often, like, okay, that's the food item I see that's healthy. Like maybe you saw a plate of vegetables. Maybe you saw a plate of fruits. Maybe you saw someone shopping at Whole Foods. I don't know, whatever it is, what, what came to mind when you pictured it? And then I'll take that, that question one step further because we are going to be talking about racism here. What was the ethnicity of the person or the race and ethnicity of the person that was making that healthy food? What did they look like to you? And is that different? Is there a bias there for you? What, again, what types of food are you, are you assuming are healthy or unhealthy? And again, I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but this is a, a question to ask yourself. Like, are we assuming that certain cultures and certain foods are healthy and unhealthy? And, you know, a lot of us, if we've been educated in the U.S., we probably have some bias there because a lot of our textbooks still push us that way. They still tell us that certain cultures only do this and this culture is better than that culture. It's a very, very important thing to think through what that is. All right, so I often ask this question again, like what I just did to y'all, like what is healthy food? What do you think of? How do you feel? Um, I do this to really any presentation I've done in the past probably six to seven years. Um, and I like to say like, what, what feelings are evoked when you think of healthy food? Like who gets excited? And I know y'all are in nutrition. I assume everyone that's on this call is like positive about nutrition. Um, you know, you're, you're in the nutrition world. So I assume you have a positive feeling when you, when you think of healthy food, but the vast majority and most folks in the U S you know, they're thinking something along this term of sad salad, something that's not enjoyable, something that doesn't evoke positive feelings, something that doesn't make you want to change your behavior. Right. I mean, and I, I, I put this picture of, a, if you Google sad salad, you'll probably come up with something like this. I put this up here just to say, it's not something that is a nice hook when you're trying to change behavior. It's something that is going to make you be like, uh, maybe I want to do this. Maybe I can do it, but it's not really something that's very interesting. And that's a, that's a big problem when we're trying to change behaviors. Remember the other thing, when we talk about the picture of healthy food, maybe some of y'all recognize this in your own biases. Maybe some of you feel like this has been my whole life. I've been told, you know, my culture, my food isn't healthy. You know, you've been told that, you know, healthy food only looks a certain way. It's only this food, you know, grits are not healthy. They're not a whole grain. They are, um, you know, uh, you know, collard greens aren't good for you, but they are same concept as kale, but we're only told one certain way of eating. And we typically will label those non-Eurocentric foods as ethnic. We put a label on it. We usually then tag that along with unhealthy, greasy, bad for you, yada, yada, yada. A lot of stereotypes rooted in racism 
that push our patients and our populations to avoid these traditional foods. And again, this is a very, very big problem. And I see some comments here too in the chat. Um, very important, yeah, I'm saying portions and things along that line. Yes, I will definitely touch on that here in a second on the portion sizes and what we're consuming, et cetera. So as a chef, you know, we, you ask these questions like, where does, you know, why, why, why do we eat a certain way? Why are certain places, you know, speaking in the U.S., why do we have certain flavors? What are certain spices? Why do we use certain ingredients? And if we ask that question, we have to look back at the truth of our history, our shared history, which is very not enjoyable. There's a lot of things that occurred and, and, and that we have to address and talk about. And one of the, the issues I think that hadn't been brought up enough in nutrition is colonialism and slavery. And if we don't look at that and understand, okay, when with colonialism, we saw these nations, you know, essentially take over other nations, occupy, destroy, exploit, et cetera. And also with that comes different flavors and foods. Like why are there peppers in India? Why are there potatoes here? Why are there tomatoes there? Like all of this impacts the way we eat. And it's very important that we understand that because again, that that's one of the reasons why we have certain flavors and profiles within certain areas of the U.S. And then when those folks move across the U.S., they also bring those flavors and it melds and mixes with other things, which again is really, really important. But more than that, it's important to understand how did that, the concept of colonialism and the concept of slavery translate into how we view what is healthy now versus what is actually healthy. And, you know, this is just a, a small example, but the, the concept of curry, which we see, you know, in a lot of places around the world, you know, the, the term that, that we can find at least was called curry, which was named by the, the Portuguese colonizers. And then the, the English colonizers termed it curry. And essentially anywhere where the English went and took, you know, servants and slaves, those curry foods were also brought. And they were typically, you know, termed not very good, you know, spicy. It's things that I don't want to eat. It's, it's the ethnic cuisine. And that's, that's where it's translated. If we move, if we kind of elaborate, you know, a few hundred years, that's where we see it in our restaurants where we're labeling things as that's ethnic cuisine. It's not the ideal perception of what is healthy. And again, this is really important as how we communicate what is nutrition and I'll tie this into, you know, culture, humility, and food insecurity, but I really want, I really think this is very, very important how we're communicating the concept of what's healthy, what's not healthy. So it's very, you know, like I already mentioned, I've already talked about colonialism here a little bit, but, you know, the concept of how a lot of this stuff has gotten through peer review, you know, how, how do we have a paper published in 2020 that literally defines Southern cuisine as ultra processed foods? That's it. It, it literally, it literally defined, you know, a, a, a paper out of a, a prestigious university in, in, in Alabama uh, just literally described, you know, Southern cuisine essentially as ultra processed food. It, it didn't talk about any of the culture, none, none of the other factors surrounding that food, but defined it that way. And that was in 2020. Um, there's a huge problem here that still exists within our literature where us as researchers now, we really have to say, wait, hold up. How are you talking about this culture? Why are we defining one culture? Why are we comparing them one better than the other? Why not talk about the actual food itself? That would make more sense. And this is just some examples. These are a little dated. There's some newer ones if you, if you see them out there. But one, one that I think is a very good example is the concept of clean Chinese food, which 
the Americanized version of, of Chinese food is, is very much a bastardization of Chinese food, just like the concept of, you know, Southern cuisine being only fried chicken is also very much a, you know, a, a small window of what a food culture actually is. Like, yeah, there might be fried chicken in, in you know, a lot of Southern cuisine, but it's just one tiny thing. It's not that make up the whole entire culture. Um, the same thing could be said, like, is, is spaghetti all of Italian cuisine? Like, no, it might just, it's just one pasta dish. So very important that we, you know, understand that these biases, they still exist and they're very strong. And because we're still looking at it through an education lens where we're repeating this and repeating it in our textbooks, it continues to persist. So very important that we look at like, wait, when I'm saying this versus that, um, what do I actually mean? And what often happens is we do this labeling and this is, you know, for better or for worse, it, it's for our research. We have to quantify things, right? But we put everybody into a bucket. We say they're Asian, they're Hispanic, you know, they're from the South. Um, and then we just say everybody eats the same way, right? Everyone that is Hispanic eats exactly the same, which we know is not at all true. Everyone from Asia has exactly the same dishes, which again is ludicrous when we think about it. Like putting people in those small categories will always lead to, you know, stigmatizing and, and causing more problems when we're, when we're kind of trying to deduce down everyone into these small buckets. And I understand for research, we're trying to, you know, put people in blocks, but we can't take food and put it into these neat, in these neat and clean categories. So much more about food is who people are. And the more important thing is that the food practices change. You know, when you have uh, you know, a, a family that might be from uh, Honduras and they're living in Texas now. Well, they're going to adapt some, some, some Texas flavors and some Texas flavor profiles and vice versa with their neighbors, et cetera. And they're going to blend things and it's going to meld and it's going to change. And it's important that we ask those questions instead of just assuming that patient is from, you know, this country and therefore they eat this way. And why this is a problem is, you know, and this is just a, a smaller study, but, you know, we see this in, in other spaces too, but our patients, what they hear is nothing in my culture is healthy. I can't eat any of my cultural foods. And the problem with this is that we see our patients reject those more healthier food items where they're getting more, more of those fiber rich foods, which many of y'all identified as a problem. Um, they're rejecting those and they're, purchasing more ultra processed foods, which again is a huge problem because again, we're, we're, we're rejecting foods and flavors that, you know, it, it makes somebody who they are, you know, and I, I know I've said it like 10 times now, but it's so important that we don't remove someone's humanity when they have a, a condition. And if you think of it this way, a patient is 50 years old, they're diagnosed with diabetes and what they hear from their provider, um, what they hear from the nutrition world is, you can't have any cultural connection anymore. You can't eat those foods anymore. You have to adopt another way of life. That doesn't work. And it's kind of cruel, to be honest, that we're removing humanity. In reality, we should be working through what that person loves to eat. And to look at it in a different light, if that patient's 50 years old, they've been eating those foods for nearly 49 years of their life. So, you know, it's similar flavor profiles, honestly. And that's a very difficult change to make if you completely remove that joy and that pleasure um, off, the, off the radar form. So in, in, 
I want to, I want to do this now that I've kind of made that argument there, but I want to define an unhealthy eating pattern. I know like all y'all probably know this already. I'm not trying to, you know, tell everybody something they don't know, but I'm trying to just kind of make some comparisons here. So for defining for, for the sake here, for defining a, an unhealthy dietary pattern, essentially diets that don't have fiber on in them. That's, that's essentially how we can look at it that way. So it, it's got a high intake of, of things that are ultra processed usually. And then there's not any fiber. There's not any plants on the plate. There's not any whole grains, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, et cetera, in some variety or form. And usually there's somebody that's like, well, you know, what about being vegan or what about being this? And it's like, yes, you can be completely plant-based and be eating, you know, drinking a soda and eating cookies and still be plant-based. So it's not about the label. It's more about, you know, is there really fiber on the plate or not? And typically with a diet like this, which is the vast majority of folks in the U.S., they're, they're going to be, you know, have lower quality nutrients overall. And it typically is associated with our chronic conditions. And that's, that's where we see it. So if we flip that and we look at, you know, what is a healthy eating pattern? I think these three things are the most important. So it's a, it's a diet dietary pattern, which someone mentioned that earlier about how, you know, it's not just one meal. It's not just Thanksgiving. It's not just Valentine's, whatever meal it might be, but it's, it's in, in general, the way you're eating throughout the year. So it's one that emphasizes vegetables. It minimizes the added sugars and refined grains. And I, I, I really, again, touching on this point, the minimization, not the exclusion, because we like food, <laughs> we like enjoyment. You know, anyone that likes ice cream, you know, on this call has eaten ice cream before, you're probably like, there was no real purpose to me eating ice cream, except that I really wanted it or whatever other sweet thing you enjoy. And it's for pleasure. It's for enjoyment. That's fine. But it doesn't make up the whole dietary pattern. It's a small piece. It's on the very tip of the pyramid. And the other point on the third one, the third point here, which I think is very valid and very important is that you're choosing the, you know, the higher quality foods when you can. Um, but that's not always possible. You know, sometimes you're traveling. Sometimes you have a kid that's sick. Sometimes you're, you live in a space where it's not doable. And, you know, but overall, generally speaking, your choices typically have more fiber on the plate than not. And when we're eating a pattern like that, typically, it's going to have lower association with our chronic conditions and be higher in fiber, more nutrients, et cetera, et cetera. So when we define it that way, again, let's look back here, you know, basically low fiber, um, high, you know, high uh, uh, processing of foods and high amounts of sugar, you know, uh, lower quality nutrients, we've compared, compare those two. Um, it's, that's kind of the, the differentiator there, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So we have those definitions, but then when we look at a Mediterranean, like if y'all do this, if y'all want to do this right now, if you want to Google, you know, uh, Mediterranean cuisine or whatever, you know, just, just pull up pictures. When you do that, you get something like this. It looks very clean and neat. Now, if you do the same for Southern cuisine, you get something like this, which is, again, yeah, there's some, like I mentioned earlier, there's some fried chicken in Southern cuisine. There's also some, you know, radishes and avocados and bell peppers in Mediterranean cuisine. But if you flip it, there's also euros and French fries in Mediterranean restaurants as well. But why don't we see those pictures represented more fully? You know, why don't we see the legume-based dishes represented more fully in Southern cuisine? And I would argue a lot, uh, you know, a good portion of this is due to some, some race, racism and some bias there. Um, I don't think um, we recognize it all the time what we're doing, but it's very important that as we move forward, we understand, you know what, let me step back instead of falling into the, the stigmas and those, those, you know, those categories that I'm thinking people's foods are, let me actually take a step back. Like, 
Mexican food is not chips and salsa. That's not all Mexican cuisine, even though that's what we see often. And we see that represented very, you know, uh, rudely, I would say, uh, in many spaces. So it's very important. Again, we recognize these biases. So pop quiz for y'all. Which cuisine of these do you think is healthy? Yeah, so I see most, most of y'all are saying all of them. Some of you might just say C because, again, that's where the literature is pushing us to that. And, yeah, there's a lot of cultures, you know, along Mediterranean that have some very, very beautiful food, some, you know, overall eating more fibers and things. Um, there's also those, you know, when we look at, like, the blue zones where this concept of Mediterranean diet came out of, there's also, you know, those foodways are similar in a lot of other places in the world. So I would answer, you know, all can be healthy and unhealthy. Um, it, it, we don't want to get into cultural comparison where we compare the Mexican culture is better than the Peruvian culture, the Peruvian culture is better than the Nigerian culture, et cetera, et cetera. That again, when we're working with patients, tells them that they have to reject who they are. So this is just a kind of a snippet or example um, of kind of what I'm talking about here. If you look in the bottom of the pyramid, again, like the very bottom connection, you know, there's lifestyle factors, there's exercise, there's ability, you know, lower stress, getting sleep, you're, you know, connecting with, with your, with your relatives and your friends. And then above that, you have the fiber rich foods. Okay. And then, you know, as you get further to the top, that's where the sweets and the things we shouldn't be consuming as much, but still enjoy are in there. And that there, there's similar eating patterns around the world. Now I want to be frank that in many spaces, people aren't eating this way by and large in the U S even if you're from one of these, these, you know, this is a culture that represents you potentially, you're probably not even eating that way. But these traditional ways of eating are very important for us to connect to because a lot of the flavors that we still enjoy are very much associated with that way of eating. So uh, my, myself as an example, I'm, I'm a dietitian that doesn't like kale. I don't know if there's any more of y'all out there. Anybody want to be honest? Dietitians that don't like kale, if you feel, you know, you feel, okay, there's a few of you. <laughs> There's always a few of us. Yay. All right. And no offense to you that do love kale. I'm more power to you. I don't like it. Um, but there's a lot of other dark leafy greens out there that we can enjoy, like collards and mustards uh, are, are two that I love. Um, but again, you know, being told that you can only eat one certain way of, you know, food culture or, or food way makes people feel like, uh, my culture is bad, you know, or the food I love is bad. And yes, there can be some, we need to make some changes, but you know, I can eat a black IP. I don't have to eat a chickpea. And that's very, very important. And I know it seems like such an obvious thing, but if we aren't explicitly saying that to our patients, it can be very confusing. So I would emphasize this point here that when we're talking about food and food culture, we, we make sure that we are not comparing the two to each other. We don't say you're from Honduras, you should be eating Mediterranean. What we should be doing is saying, let's look at what you're consuming. Let's look at the types of vegetables that, you know, your family enjoys or things that you like to eat. And then let's try to have a similar eating pattern where we're eating more of those fiber rich foods on the bottom of the plate instead of just prescribing, go eat a Mediterranean diet. This is another big point that I want to make. Um, similar to the, uh, the first point on, the, uh, on one of my slides earlier on about the sad salad. Typically, when we see health go up, we see flavor go down. And that is not, again, a, a big uh, 
point for, for drawing people in to help and nutrition, um, people want food that tastes good. So, you know, when flavor goes up, you know, health usually goes down. And again, big problem there because, oh man, this is delicious, but you know, it, it's not very healthy for me. And this picture here is actually from our cookbook. It's actually a, you know, plant-based and, you know, like it's a beef and bean burger. So it's a combination. It's a healthier for you option. Um, and it's a way to sell it a little more, right? This looks delicious and it also happens to be healthy. Another way to look at that. Um, yeah, so I would agree with you, uh, Lorraine, that, yeah, it's, those are very generalized pyramids, which is a huge problem too. Like the fact that we have so few options to even illustrate, hey, here's some different ways of eating. Um, and again, we know like in Houston, for instance, where I live, if you grew up in Houston, you could have a, hundred different ways of eating. Um, I grew, you know, I, I grew up in Southern Alabama on the coast. I grew up eating way more seafood than those that might be up in central or Northern Alabama. We all have very, a lot of variances from neighbor to neighbor, city to city. So it's very difficult to generalize. And I'm even generalizing in those spaces too. But here, if y'all are familiar with, you know, kind of this concept of, uh, you know, what do you need first? You know, it, you know, your psychological needs and then your safety needs, et cetera. If we look at it on food choice, I would argue very strongly that flavor is the vast majority of the, the thing we're looking at first. If food doesn't taste good, you're not going to eat it long term. You might try it. You might force yourself to do it for a little while. And that's where we see our patients doing that. But long term, it's not sustainable and achievable. So we have to really look at like, how can we make foods that we're offering or we're suggesting people to consume in flavors that match what people enjoy? And then look at the other barriers, the time, the cost, access, all these other uh, factors. And then nutrition is, again, higher up on the top after you overcome the flavor principle and then the, the other barriers. Yes, I, I, I very much think nutrition is important, but also like it's not the hook. You don't sell healthy eating with the sad salad. You sell healthy eating with deliciousness. And I, I describe this in one way. Um, I'll ask this and, and y'all please give me feedback here in the, uh, in the chat box. Who's had boiled Brussels sprouts when they're boiled? Who's had them boiled? What was your reaction? I can't see your faces, but okay. Yes. Uh, yep. Yep. Yuck. 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 Usually, usually that's usually how it is. There'll be a, a few. Oh yeah. I like them. But you know, if you're one of those people that likes them, you like anything. So that's fine. Usually people say it tastes like the toilet. I don't want to eat them. They smell really bad. Those same people that said um, they're yuck, have you had them roasted? Do you like them when they're roasted? What do y'all think? Yeah, right? It, it's a complete change of mindset. And now, the, the, the big point here is that most folks, you know, vegetable exposure has been boiled Brussels sprouts. That's the mentality. This is disgusting. It's not good. It's sad salad. It's, it's gross. So selling that is difficult. That is not a good hook for us to really pull people to make changes. So that's why I argue flavor, you know, prepare it in a way that's delicious, you know, help people work through the things that they like. If you're, if you're someone like me that likes barbecue and you eat barbecue, well, using a smoked paprika spice on your roasted vegetables is going to mimic some of those similar flavors. And as humans, when we're talking about the behaviors that we're going to do long-term, if we can make connections to something we already like, it's a little easier to make those stair steps. So again, when we're talking about nutrition changes, very, very important that we look for that. This is just another way to look at, you know, the concept of like flavor being important. But if we're trying to get our patients, or our community members to, 
that healthy eating, that plate in the middle. You know, we can overcome a lot of these barriers. We can do a lot of different things. We can provide some, some skill building. We can provide some time savings by doing, a, you know, potentially a food distribution. But if we're not delivering foods that people like or enjoy, or we're not able to prepare them in ways where people are used to them, um, are used to are kind of recognize similar flavors, then it's not going to be sustainable long-term. And I know there's a lot of folks out there that would argue, but my, my, my taste change, you know, my, my, my flavor profiles change. And that's, that's absolutely true. But it's also very important to start on a positive experience. You know, like if you don't like vegetables, but you have a positive experience with Brussels sprouts, you're more likely to keep trying different vegetables and start liking more and more things. If your first exposure is boiled Brussels sprouts, you spent your own money, purchased the, boil, the Brussels sprouts, boiled them, they were disgusting, way less likely to actually go through the steps to keep preparing them in ways that are, are not enjoyable. So kind of stepping into the next few points and I'll, I'll try to hurry up so we can have time for, uh, for question and answers, but it's really important, you know, when we're talking about nutrition insecurity, and I know I'm kind of maybe seemingly not wrapping this together, but um, we're gonna fix this. We're gonna do food distribution, we're going to go in this community. We're going to solve all the problems because this, this place, you know, this community, they need my help. You know, I'm an expert. I know what to do. I read the, I read the, you know, the, the, the literature. I know that if, you know, if people have access to foods, it's more likely to consume it. If we connect it with the cooking class, they're, they're going to make it happen. So we design programs and we go into a community and we just do it. And we never once connected with the folks that we're actually supposed to be working with. Um, we have to avoid that. That um, we, We've abused many communities and research. Uh, I would say um, all with, you know, quote, air quotations here of like doing good for the community, but really what we're doing is we're, we're adding a, another line to our CV. Uh, we're getting another publication or, or two or three or four publications uh, for us to get promotion. So very important that whenever we are doing community-based work, what are the reasons for it? You know, who are we actually serving? Is it for myself or is it for the community? So I already mentioned that patient journey a little bit. You know, that patient's 50-something years old. They, they get a diagnosis of a, of a condition. Maybe there's a referral of some sort to nutrition. Usually what happens, and maybe y'all feel differently about this. Oh, yeah, Lorraine, I like your comment there, white coat mentality, where it's top down. I know everything. You just listen, get in line. Um, we want to avoid that for sure. Um, what we often see is the patient, you know, they didn't follow the advice. So what do we do? We label them as non-compliant. Have y'all seen that in your charts? Anybody that works clinically, have y'all seen that in your charts? What do y'all think? Have you seen it? We often write it down too. That's, that's something we do. No, they're, they're non-compliant. And so what we do is we say, well, you know, just try harder similar to the first or second slide I had up where, you know, just, just eat the vegetables, just do it, you know, just, just go do it, go be healthy, you know, just solve your problems. It's not realistic. And, and the way I would ask my med students, this question is I would say, how many of your patients that you see on a daily basis want to be sick? If you get a patient that has diabetes, do you think they want diabetes? And when you ask it in that way, you know, who wants to lose a limb? Who wants to go blind? Who wants to die before their grandkids are born? No one does. And if they do, there's a mental health issue. So we have, really have to look at it from the opposite side and say, what can we do better? You know, how if 90% or 80% of folks aren't able to follow this advice that we're giving, what can we do to support them? Very important we look at it through that lens instead of just blaming 
the patient. So I'm sure y'all are familiar with, you know, structural determinants of health, social determinants of health, but if we're wanting to get people to the healthy side here, doing the healthy eating, the, you know, sleep, rest, all those things, health and well-being, then we have to look at what systems are in place and, you know, what tools were put there um, to make those systems. And more importantly, just like I've talked today, like, why are we assuming that one culture's foods are better than the other? Like we all, every, every culture around the world has vegetables, right? I mean, we don't have to say vegetables from this region are better than all the other. We can say, no, eat, eat the vegetables that you like and that you enjoy. So we really have to look at those root causes and the discrimination and the racism. Very, very important. We look at that, to see how they impacted the systems that our patients now are struggling with. So a few of the questions that I like to ask to really say, how can I address this with cultural humility? And I, I don't think I did a good job of this earlier on kind of defining cultural humility versus cultural competence. I, I know the, the term cultural competence is around, we use it a lot, but I think it's kind of a, a hard thing to say, like I'm culturally competent because what did you took a class and then you know everything about me? Are you, you know, you, you read a paper and now you're competent about this. Like, yes, you can be more competent. You can understand more, you can learn more, but you'll never know everything about something. So I think it's very important for us to improve our competency, but at the same time, exhibit that we aren't the experts in everyone's lives. We are experts, we know a lot, but we have to kind of take a, a back seat to say, tell me really about yourself. Tell me what you actually do. Tell me what you actually consume. That's really the kind of the shift where we exhibit more humility than just competency. So I like to ask these questions kind of in the social ecological model kind of mindset of like, what's in your patient's control? Like, do they live in a a household with three generations and they aren't the one that grocery shops. So maybe they're not the one that can actually do anything about the food. Um, is it their spouse that's preparing the foods and you're going to have to get them into your appointment to, to make a change? Um, is it more of a community-based thing like where, you know, there isn't access to foods within that neighborhood? Is that, a, is that part of the problem? Is, is that an issue? Um, in you creating a, a delivery system, will that put the local store out of business or should you partner with that local store? Like, how can you kind of work within those pieces? I think another big piece is like, you know, if you're in a clinical, and I don't know how many folks are clinical, but if you're in a clinical situation, we always need to be advocating on behalf of our patients, not just stop it like, hey, here's a food distribution, but like, what can we do if our clinic is in this neighborhood to improve the neighborhood? What can we sponsor? What can we help shine a light on? How can we do, get media around this to really show the problems? I, I do believe that's part of you know, our duty as, as researchers, as, as clinicians, to really improve our patients' uh, well-being. And the last point here, which I think is fundamentally very important and one that we often uh, have a lot of discomfort around, is just accepting that some things cannot be changed. Um, I mentioned earlier that sometimes your patients don't need fixing. I think that's very important. Um, sometimes patients just need to be heard. You know, like, hey, I'm struggling with this. And you can listen. You know, listening is very powerful. Um, as y'all are listening to me talk for an hour, um, you know, it's very, very important that we listen um, to what people are saying instead of automatically assuming we have the answer. So I am wrapping up here just a few more slides and then I'll have time for questions. Um, talking about cultural humility, you know, with food, with nutrition insecurity, again, nutrition is not a positive experience for a lot of people. Yes, it can be. Yes, it should be, but it hasn't been before. So very important that we create a positive environment, like talk about food, enjoyment, not what you're taking away, but what you enjoy. 
I, I often describe this in a certain way where, you know, I'm a chef and a dietitian. If I tell a patient I'm a dietitian, unfortunately, most patients think I'm going to take something away. They view me as the food police and they are like, uh, I eat brown rice, chicken and broccoli and that's it. I don't want to say anything else. You know, if I say I'm a chef, it flips the switch where, Ooh, tell me what you're, tell me what you're eating. Oh, tell me what your favorite thing to cook is. And, and that kind of seemingly like simple change in like how you're communicating about joy and pleasure versus pulling something away is very, very important when we're trying to make those changes for folks. The next point is building that trust, which is going to take time, especially if you're doing community interventions, don't assume just to go in and fix everything. Like take time, learn, um, meet, like understand what the community is already working on. And maybe you can just support something that's already existing and build up other people. And you can be in the background if need be, but not be the one that gets all the credit. Um, listen, there's a period behind there because there's no other explanation needed. Um, you just, just listen. And then, you know, I think everyone on here understands this one, but we don't need to be shaming people. Um, no one wants to be sick. So if they're struggling, then we just need to find out a new way to support them. And, you know, it might take a long time. You know, I would say behavior change is not an acute fix. It's going to take some time and we have to be realistic with people. Very, very important. So this is just kind of like what we do in our teaching kitchen space. So if you're not familiar in like a culinary medicine or where we actually prepare food with our patients. So um, kind of this concept of tasty do where we're changing that negative perception of the boiled Brussels sprouts to like, oh, these are actually really good. I like this. The scene portion is you're going to watch, you know, myself or someone else or one of your peers prepare it. And it's, oh, it actually is not that hard. It's pretty simple. Um, it, it's pretty cost effective. I can do that. And then the doing part is you actually do it yourself and maybe you like it, maybe you don't, maybe you fail a little bit, but we normalize that failure. So you can say, you know what, I tried this at home. My family didn't like that. What can I do different? And then you kind of work through, okay, maybe Brussels sprouts aren't the one you should go with. Maybe green beans are better for your kids because they like that or carrots are going to be a better starting vegetable, et cetera. So really working through that and building up that peer-to-peer -peer re reinforcement. But I like this concept from uh, teaching kitchens where it's the tasty do model. I really think it's, it's done a lot here. So kind of wrapping up again, I would say, let's try to avoid talking about nutrients. Let's talk about food. Like what is, what do you actually eat? You know, like, tell me what, what you're going to the store, what you're purchasing, whatever it might be, what, what's on, on your table. Let's ask those questions. And then we can kind of help get more of those food items that we know on the bottom of the pyramid or should be seen on the plate. I would ask all of you, Whenever you're reviewing papers, when you read it, if you're a student, you're reading a textbook and you see something that's like, hold up, wait a minute, that's not kosher, right? Write, write them and say, this doesn't, this doesn't fit. We shouldn't be having that in there. We shouldn't have this there. Um, we need to make sure that we're avoiding certain languages. Um, you know, I would say call it out. Very, very important. And then all of us should choose to learn more about different ways of eating um, and not say that my way everyone should come to my way and look through my lens, which is often what we do. You'll see people say, well, everyone needs to fit through a Mediterranean lens. No, there's all these other ways that are similar and we can keep them similar and we can say these are similar ways of eating. We don't have to fit it through one lens of, of food ways. Um, practice cultural humility. You know, I, I, I use the example that I, I've been a chef for more than 15 years. I can cook really good. Just being honest that I, I, I'm confident in my cooking ability, but when I'm seeing a patient, I don't, I'm not the expert in what they prepare, what they do um, at home. I can ask good questions and learn about their food, but they are the expert more than myself. Um, I think it's very important 
that we don't prescribe things, but we really walk alongside our patients to learn what they might want to do or what they might want to change. Very important to focus on flavor. Uh, hopefully y'all get that from me today. I know I've said it like 20 times. Um, and it's, it, it's also okay if you don't like something. Like it's fine to not like kale. Um, it's fine to not like collard greens. It's fine to like, not like a lot of things, but there's something, there's a lot of other vegetables, a lot of other, you know, so-called healthy food items out there that we can find that might be enjoyable for you. So uh, when you talk flavor and you show some humility that, oh, you know, it's okay to not, not like that. It, it, it's always perfect. In my cooking classes, I, I point out the trash cans and I say, if you don't like this, spit it out and let's talk about why you don't like it. Let's figure out the reason behind it. Um, and then let's celebrate culture or celebrate foods. Uh, instead of being a field where we take away, let's talk about, hey, let, how can we really, you know, yes, you have this diagnosis. Yes, there might be this condition, but how can we come together and learn to enjoy our lives instead of say, I have a condition that is going to make me miserable for the next 20, 30 years or however long I live uh, after this. Let's, let's flip that and make it where we can start celebrating those things. Um, just a few pictures to illustrate kind of what that looks like in our spaces. So, you know, food pharmacy, if you're not familiar, just, you know, partnerships with food banks where there's, you know, kind of a variety of different food items kind of connected to a, a kitchen where we're preparing those food items. Um, not super complex, pretty simple, um, but kind of walking through those steps of what's, what's there, what's not there. How can we turn this into something that everyone enjoys, or maybe some people like, some people don't like, but we can walk through, um, and, and find some other things that are enjoyable. So, um, I've already touched on these, but um, I appreciate y'all listening. I'm at the end of my presentation. Happy to answer any questions um, y'all might have. Thank y'all for listening. All right. Thank you so much, Wesley, for a great presentation. We have a couple questions that have come in in uh, the Q&A. So um, the first is, do you have suggestions on how to approach asking patients for their race or ethnicity on surveys for research? Yeah, I mean, it's not a, it's, I'll, I'll be frank, it's not a favorite of mine. Um, and I don't think it honestly does us a lot of good when we're talking about what foods people actually eat. Um, I think it's better to start with, you know, what you actually enjoy and what you consume. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a catch 22 on this one on, on both sides here. Like you're trying to understand like, what is the population that you're working with? So, uh, you know, if, if that's of need for your research, then asking that makes sense with kids, you need parents present because kids don't understand, especially in today's world where we have a lot of, of biracial folks. There's just a lot of, I mean, a lot of you know, my kids, my, you know, friends and family, it's confusing. So um, if kids have present uh, parents present would be my opinion on that. I'm sure others on here might also have a better opinion than that. When we're talking about if we translate that into like actual food recommendations, I don't ask someone like, hey, what's your culture? I just ask them what you like to eat and like, hey, what did, what did your grandmother or your grandfather, whoever, whoever you grew up cooking with, like or whoever made food for you, if they did, even if they didn't do any cooking, like what did y'all eat? Where did you eat growing up? What did you enjoy? Like what are those pleasurable experiences that you liked growing up with food? And some people don't have them. Some people have very difficult lives and that doesn't relate to them. They're usually a little on the outside of the bell curve, but most of us have had some positive food experiences and we use those positive food experiences to kind of create some positive like health changes as well. Um, in regards to my plate, um, 
Yes. So there needs to be more options than just a plate, a bowl, you know, a, a wrap, whatever it might be. Um, we have, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, I think we are very behind the times and having options that reflect the diversity and inclusion of, of the U.S. Um, we, we need way more pictures um, out there too, just to illustrate, hey, this is what, you know, a, a great quality meal would look like and have a ton of options and different flavor profiles and different, you know, food cultures, et cetera, et cetera, recommend, uh, recommend, uh, represented. So I agree, definitely need uh, more things there. And then I say the last point here, um, don't prescribe. Yeah, so it is a catch, like, I'm like, hey, here's a food prescription, but then we're like, hey, don't prescribe. It's kind of like, hey, you're being a hypocrite. Um, there's, a, there's some power in the provider saying, hey, this is important. Like if, if you work with providers or you are a provider yourself, um, I, I think it's very important that you say that you bring them on board and say, Hey, you know, I need you to tell or work with our patients to illustrate the importance of this. And literature is pretty strong that, that, that is a positive thing. Um, but also like, we have to be very careful with like how we, you know, you don't just bring someone in and say, Hey, here's your prescription for, you know, the next six weeks, eat exactly like this. Cause that, that's just a diet. And we've seen, I mean, everyone on here knows that diets don't work long-term. They work when we're in a controlled setting, when we're studying it, but after that's all gone, it doesn't really work um, for uh, sustainability purposes. Absolutely. Great. Well, um, I think those are the questions that we've had come in so far. If anyone has any others they'd like to add to um, the Q&A, um, please go ahead and do that. Um, and I will, um, again, reiterate what many are saying in the um, in the chat that this was a great presentation. We really appreciate you um, bringing your thoughts and um, understandings to us. And um, you know, definitely, this is something that with that we can put into our practice and in our teaching. Absolutely, and I I want to you know share just to just to be honest too. There's many other folks similar to me saying similar things. So um, I'm not like a, a somehow a forefront voice on this. I'm just speaking what I've learned and what I've seen with my communities I've worked with um, and, and students I've worked with that have said, hey, you know what, what, what you're recommending, it doesn't, it doesn't work for us. You know, it doesn't work for me. So just being opening, open to listening, I, I would encourage each of you to you know, check yourself and say, hey, what have I done in my research? What have I done in my work for the past few years? And how can I improve and be better so that we can better serve our communities. Yes, excellent. Thank you for the presentation. Um, just a reminder, when we close the webinar today, there's a short survey and your feedback's appreciated. Um, also, you'll see an email by Wednesday of this week with a link to the CEU uh, that you earned today, as well as um, the recording from today. And a reminder, um, you mentioned um, gender identity reporting, which is actually the topic of the webinar next Monday afternoon, uh, gender reporting identity implications, practices, opportunities, and challenge. Um, uh, the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior DEI subcommittee has organized a panel. Um, so please go on to the SNEB website uh, if you're interested in that webinar. And then typically Mondays are Journal Club, um, which are articles in the in JNEB that where we uh, have the authors. And this semester we're looking at digital technology and nutrition. So um, again, 
the webinars are listed up on the website. We hope to see you back online. And thank you for to both um, the Public Health Nutrition Division and the Higher Ed Division and uh, Jen and Matthew for mentioning the late-breaking uh, deadline for the conference, uh, which is Wednesday. You've got all day Wednesday um, to get your abstract in. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing everyone in Washington, D.C. So thank you all for joining today's presentation. Thanks, everyone.